Well, thank you. For many of you know, I had a, uh, a little uh, procedure a few weeks ago, uh, had a heart surgery, and uh, they, the doctor repaired a mitral valve is what it's called, and the surgery was successful, and I've been recovering. I've been recovering for several weeks now, and uh, Christy and I really, really do appreciate your prayers and your thoughts over the past several weeks as this has been a rather interesting time. So thank you again for, for your prayers and concern. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you for being here this 4th of July weekend. Happy 4th of July. I want to read you a passage here today. It's in the Gospel of John. And it's in John 15, and so it's interesting when you look at the Gospel of John, starting in about, I think, the 13th chapter, all the way to the very end of this Gospel, it's getting ready for the crucifixion. It's getting ready for Christ sacrificially laying down his life. And in John 15, he starts talking to his close, close followers about what he is all about and what they're to be all about. And he's telling them, hey, listen, you have to love each other. As I have loved you, so you need to love one another. And then in John 15, verse 13, our verse here today, he spells it out, what that looks like. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Christ was about to do. And that's what Christ would call all of his followers to do, to lay down their lives for each other. Now, in our church family, in our country, on Memorial Day, also on the 4th of July weekend, we remember those and reflect on the men and women who have served our country. Many who have laid down their life, put themselves in harm's way, that we might experience the freedom that we have here today, the freedoms that many times we take for granted. So today, we are honored to have in our service a guy who served in the special forces. He was a ranger in the army. He served five deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. He also was a part of the mission that captured Saddam Hussein. Uh, he has been a part of our church family for over 10 years. He and his wife, Lacey, have two sons, Oliver and Elliot. And it's my privilege uh, to welcome today to 1111 our very own Sergeant Stephen Cunningham. Sergeant, come on up. Thank you. Thank you. Have a seat. 
Well, man, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank and you, you have a uh, fan club here from Oklahoma, I right? I do, yes. Uh, In-laws, Lacey's folks, her sister, her husband, and uh, all of her. Yeah. So I think we have a picture of your family up there behind there. You can see them there. Well, man, tell me about uh, being in special forces, being a ranger. That's something guys don't like to say it, but something that most guys aspire to. Either that or pro football, right? I mean, that's the goal. And so how do you do that? You can't just kind of walk up and say, hey, I want to I want to be a SEAL. I want to be a Ranger. What, what, what was your story? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, it's, it's easier than this. So <laughs> I'll start with that. Uh, and football players make a lot more money than government workers. Yes, but, uh, yes, they do. Um, no, to answer your question, you, you actually do just walk up to the recruiter and kind of tell them what you want to be, and, and then they'll give you the rundown if that's possible or not. Um, in my case... It was uh, a recruiter that had a poster behind his desk of um, some guys all camoed up in the jungle on a raft, um, high-speed weapons, looking really cool. And I said, um, I'll do that. And he, he, he kind of laughed j just like that, right? Yeah. No, uh, and he said, well, I, I can't guarantee you that, but... I can give you a contract that will send you to uh, base training. You'll go to infantry school, airborne school, and then you can go through ranger assessment and selection. And uh, if you make it, then, uh, then, then you're in. And I didn't realize at the time, but once you make it, that's when the, that's when the real work begins. But I, I did make it, and uh, I guess the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. So you were how old? I, so I enlisted halfway through my senior year of high school, so I was 18, and, um, and then shipped out for basic training in the summer of 2001. And what year? So 2001. 2001. Okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. So tell me, how, how many people start off and how many people finish? In, in my RIP class, there, it, it was in the mid-300s, mid to high 300s, and 64 of us graduated in that, in that class. And how do they weed you out? What, what, what's the process of uh, finding out who's got what it takes and who doesn't? Uh, physical abuse, um, it's a lot of, yeah, it's uh, sleep deprivation. It's not any one talent that they're looking for. They're essentially looking for guys that won't quit. So sleep deprivation, um, some food deprivation, a lot of physical activity thrown in on top of that. Like, like give us an example of physical activity, because that's gonna be a relative term here. Sure, sure. Um, well, you, you don't walk anywhere. Um, you live on your chest doing push-ups. Um, and when you're not doing that, you're, you have something heavy on your back and you're running. Uh, probably the biggest, the biggest benchmark um, fitness test would have been, uh, it was untimed, unknown distance ruck march with a 45-pound uh, backpack on. And um, it ended up being 12... 12 miles in, in two hours was the standard. Um, and you're running harder because you don't know if you're going to make it. But that, that was probably one of the more difficult physical challenges. And where did the training take place? Um, I would say 80% of my training was at Fort Benning in Georgia. I went to basic training there, infantry training, airborne school. Uh, RIP was there. And then I went back for Darby phase of ranger school. Um, so... 
I spent a lot of time at Fort Benning. <laughs> yeah. How, how about, but, but you, you trained all... All over the country, all over the world. Um, if, we weren't, if we weren't deployed in combat, we were somewhere else training around the world, around the country. Um, so I told you this morning, out, out of the four years that I was enlisted and uh, stationed at Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah at 1st Range Battalion, I, total time in Savannah was about nine months just due to yeah. training cycles and deployment yeah, yeah. cycles. So t talk to us about, for those non-military here, a deployment. What, what does that entail? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, I, I guess you could say we were fortunate. We did 90-day rotation. So a deployment, combat deployment for special operations and us at the time specifically were 90 days. There are three Ranger battalions, and, and we just rotated through that cycle. So deployed for 90 days, home for 180. Um, on a deployment, it was pretty fast-paced. A uh, mission every night, we were on a reverse schedule. We'd sleep all day, we were up all night. Um, and we'd have our routine and just every night going and looking for bad guys. So how many, like how many missions were being a deployment? Um, 80 probably in a 90-day rotation. 80 missions in 90 days. Right. And right. you're going at night with those special... With night vision, right? Yeah. Night vision, yeah. yeah. The lasers, the cool stuff. Uh, you get in these mountains in Afghanistan where some of these people had never seen electricity. So when you land on their roof coming down from a helicopter and you have green eyes and... And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, they thought aliens were taking over. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So tell, tell us about uh, a deployment because back then there was a deck of cards. And talk to us about that deck of cards and how that related to your um, missions. Sure, sure. So in Iraq, the, the invasion of Iraq, um, they had formulated a list of the most wanted bad guys and, and um, matched them up with a card in a deck and Saddam being the ace of spades and then priority level down from there. So from the invasion in early 2003 until his capture in late 2003, every, at least every special operations mission was geared towards somebody specifically in that deck. Um, and it was like that on my rotation in late 2003 and um, you're going through every mission and, and catching bad guys and it starts to bleed together and um, when they tell you that they know where Saddam is, you don't really believe it because we'd been down that road a few times mm -hmm. and, and actually me personally, that was, that was supposed to be our last mission for that deployment and we were gonna go um, get ready to go home. Yeah. So, so were you guys looking for Osama bin Laden too or just or was that a part of your team or someone else? Right, we, we did. Um, in Afghanistan, it was a little different. It was more geared towards um, eliminating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. So uh, there wasn't a lot of actionable intelligence on bin Laden at mm -hmm. the time. So anything they did find was big, but, but um, I think the trail was hotter when we got to Iraq for Saddam. Which one was more arduous? Was, was Afghanistan or Iraq tougher? Or, or? Um, environmentally, Afghanistan, for sure. The mountains, just unrelenting in the, that environment. So hot in the summer, so cold in the winter. Um, some of these 
routes that insurgents were taking across the border were 10,000 feet and getting up there in helicopters. And um, so Afghanistan was, was extreme. Iraq was, I mean, I was staying in one of Saddam's palaces that had a swimming pool and we were hitting golf balls into the Tigris River. So Iraq really wasn't that bad. Uh, well, that's what you're doing during the day, but at right, night. Right, right. At night, we were in the <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a little different. We were just working at night in the city. It was, you know, it was a it was a an hour, two hour mission versus a six hour mission in Afghanistan, where everything's by helicopter and and um, in in those types of environments. But and you guys, did you guys work with other special forces like SEAL teams, and how did that work? We did. We did worked uh, what. With the SEALs, we worked with um, Air Force Special Operations. Uh, we had attachments every mission because those guys control all of our transportation and then the air support um, and then other Army Special Operations units. And it, they divided up by location primarily. Um, and at that time, um, the Navy, SEALs had Afghanistan and Army Special Operations, Delta Force had Iraq. So. Mm -hmm. Depending on where we were, we were primarily in support of those units. Yeah. How did you deal with, how did they prepare you guys psychologically for what you were going to face in those deployments? Because you were in a lot of just extreme situations, life and death. How did they prepare you all psychologically to deal with, say, fear and anxiety? Sure. Um, that, for me, that was, uh, I was on the first battalion rotation in the global war on terror. So it was kind of new ground. I mean, nobody, nobody in the unit had been in combat. There some, some guys in the other units, Delta Force, you know, they'd done stuff like maybe um, clandestine type stuff. So, so they were more suited for that. So ignorance and arrogance is kind of what I tell people. We were, I was 20 years old and <laughs> You know, every teenager thinks they're tough, but when somebody gives you a really cool gun and lots of training and you can lift lots of weight, you, you really think you're invincible. But it's the training, the trust, the trust in your teammates um, because that's really all you have in yeah. moments like that. Tell me, are you still in contact with your fellow Rangers? I or? Yeah, I've, I've a tight group. They're, they're brothers now, but we're spread out across the country. But... Uh, we stay in touch. There's plenty of banter through the text, but we try to link up at least once a year. Yeah, that's great. So tell us about that, uh, about Saddam Hussein and how, how we eventually captured him. Sure. So um, bomb makers were kind of the, the hot ticket item at that time. And anybody that they were using to, to make some of their more sophisticated IEDs and bombs. And so that's kind of what we were doing is, is rounding these guys up. And, and like I said, it was supposed to be our last mission. We went to this guy's house, got him. And way above my pay grade, somewhere, somehow this guy was in, uh, interrogated. And, and the bomb had, maker was. Yes, okay. yes. And knew somebody that knew the, the cook of Saddam and, and just through a convoluted chain um, that the higher-ups decided that we needed to uh, refit and, and move out in support of capturing Saddam. And so that's what happened. I, I wasn't specifically um, 
pulling them out. Uh, uh, yeah. Right, yeah. on site at the shed, pulling them out, but um, uh, through the network and everything, when the call came through that they did pull him out, um, heard that, and then as he was transported back to Baghdad at Biop, that, that actually was our, our last mission. And so then um, we separated up guard shifts as we were waiting for uh, Second Ranger Battalion to come and relieve us. So I had two, two personal guard shifts with him. Um, so you guarded Saddam Hussein, just you? I did. I did. Just, just like me. this? Just me, just like us. So we, he was in a room, and when he wanted to go to another room and exercise, he would walk right in front of me and tell me things about presidents, and I might smirk or have some smart aleck remark, but yeah. unauthorized, of course, I wasn't supposed to be. Yeah. You said he, he spoke perfect, perfect English. English. Perfect English. Yeah. It was an accent, but perfect enunciation. Yeah. I was sitting in a... Uh, elementary school style desk with the wood with the wrap around it had a uh -huh. wire bookshelf and a full combat kit and barely even fit in there with magazines and my rifle and even my helmet which why I, I don't know but I don't make those decisions there was a time magazine from 1991 when the first uh, world trade center bombing and, and okay. the gulf war was featured on that and so I guess that's somebody from the CIA. That's their sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell us, how, how did you um, start reassimilating back into, uh, say, civilian life after you served? Um, very difficultly. Yeah, it was, it was a challenge. Uh, I went to school for a little bit. Um, that, that was kind of a dead-end road for me. Um, and at that time, I was part of the first generation to get out of the military in, a, in wartime. And the resources weren't there, the knowledge wasn't there. Um, and so that was, that was a pretty difficult time mm -hmm. in my life. Um, thankful for my wife. Yes. Yeah, T tell me about, uh, I know a lot of uh, people coming out of combat uh, and now it's kind of in I don't know, modern culture, the concept of PTSD, is that something you struggled with? Sure, sure, How, yeah. how did you deal with um, that? And well, the, the culture of special operations is you, you don't go to sick call. You don't, if, if you're hurt and you're, sit, you're a quitter, and, and it, for better or worse, you know, that's what makes the unit function mm -hmm. at a high level, but it also, it can spit you out the back end pretty quick. And um, so... I think pride plays a big role in that too in, in recognizing that, that some of um, my outlook is not, not normal or not healthy. Um, and thankfully they do a lot better job of, of steering guys towards paths of reintegrating in civilian life. But it was a challenge and, and I don't, um, I don't, point fingers anywhere I'm just at this point I'm just grateful to be where I'm at right, right yeah do you still have to process that at all being in combat or not is it kind of you feel like that's a God's put I, that I, in the past it is in the past it is in the past I, mm -hmm. well, I physically couldn't do it even if I if I wanted to but right. um it's it seems so long ago now I mean I can remember certain specific things like it was yesterday but now it seems so long ago that it's it's almost surreal um mm -hmm. but 
proud to have done what I did and when I did. Um, there's a lot of people have done a lot more than I have and will continue to do so. But like I said, just grateful to, to have my family and the community that we have and be where I am right now. Yeah. Talk to, talk to us. Yeah. Talk to us about, about Second and, and your family's involvement here. Oh, sure. What's that look um, like? I think we've been members 10-ish uh, years, but, you know, Houston's full of bubbles. When we first moved here, we moved right to this area, and, um, you know, the church is not small, so it's like this big flashing light when we were uh, looking for a church. Well, I can see one from our house. I can see. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, yeah. And uh, no, we've 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 been here ever since. It's it's been a huge blessing. Um, I we were probably members for about five years before we really got plugged into a Bible study, and 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 we love the service, but but the Bible study has just um, yeah. been immensely important. And not only you know learning about Scripture, but just having people to make that walk with, and mm -hmm. and so we're grateful for that as well. Yeah. So I, I think. What he's talking about, you know, is that our, our church, when you first come to Second, as you said, Stephen, people go, wow, it's really big. But once people join a Bible study class, and those, we have classes, it's kind of commercial here, right? <laughs> uh, we have classes yeah. at, at 9.30 and also at 8.30 uh, that feed into our worship services. But those are, are medium-sized groups, if you would. And it's really a place where the church gets really small and you develop that sense of community uh, that you and Lacey have experienced here at Second. Right. So right. it's really critical that you, if you haven't taken that next step, that you... I, I would certainly encourage it. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a blessing. Yeah. Uh, talk to us, um, if you could, a little bit about our country. I know we're celebrating our, our nation's birthday uh, this week. And just tell us a little bit about what America uh, means to you. Sure. Uh simply just proud to be an American, um, or at least I know I'm free. Uh -huh. uh, free to worship, free to, free to you know, free to speak, free, just all the civil liberties that we in, enjoy that, that people don't realize um, could be taken away pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And um, so grateful to um, people like my grandfathers that flew in World War II and, mm -hmm. and kind of paved the way and, and people like the church community that's, mm -hmm. that stand up for, for religious beliefs and, and stuff like that. So just just grateful, yeah. grateful to be an American and yeah. be a Christian, really. Yeah. Let's thank Sergeant Stephen Cuttingham for being here today. Brother, we appreciate it. Great job, man. Yes, sir. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Really good. Thanks so much.